would ask you this morning to open God's Holy Word, the book of Romans. Our primary text this morning is from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. I'll not read those verses again as Brother Dan has already read those verses. Today, I want us to take a basic overview of the majority of the book of Romans. We're going to hit some of the highlights. There's a very, very simple outline that I'd like to give you that encompasses the truth of the book of Romans. The first, besides the basic introduction, is sin. Sin is dealt with in chapters 1 through verses 320. Sin. Second, and another S, salvation is dealt with in verses chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of chapter 5. Sanctification is the third S, and it's dealt with in chapter 6 through 8. Then the fourth S is sovereignty in verses, excuse me, chapters 9 through 11, and then practical implications from chapter 12 through the end of the book. Very simple, four S's. Sin, salvation, sanctification, and sovereignty. You know, the, the Scriptures reveal to us who God is. And the book of Romans, inspired by the Apostle Paul, reveals to us the glories of the Gospel. And these verses of our text today in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, reveals to us the very heart of the Gospel. So I pray today that God opens our eyes and gives us a new, a new understanding and a new glory in the Gospel that we are here to worship God in. First of all, let's think about the subject of sin. The plight of sin that we are in. Let me say that this is truly terrible news. If we understand the doctrine of sin the way we ought to understand it, it's horrible. It's bad news. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says that we're all involved in this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means that that we have all missed the mark. It's actually an an archery term, the word fallen short. Our arrow does not get to the place it's supposed to go. We have all sinned. We have all missed the mark. We have all sinned against God. The whole human race stands guilty before God. And there are two dimensions to that sin. First of all, There is a lack of conformity to the very image of God, His very holiness. We don't match up in that sense. We are are not like Him. We are altogether different from Him. He's holy, righteous, pure, and we're sinful and evil. We have missed the mark. This is the great sin of omission. That we are not like God. Although we still retain some semblance of the image of God, the image is horribly marred because we have sinned as Adam sinned. And then the other portion of the fact that we're sinners is simply that we have transgressed the law of God. The Scripture says that sin is that very thing. Sin is a transgression of the law of God. So we're guilty. We're guilty in sinning against God in our our deeds. That's clear. But we're also guilty of sinning against God. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. By our words often. But also our thoughts. God knows our thoughts. Whether they're pure or whether they're not. So, if we're honest with God... We totally concur with what the Word of God says. That we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. And James chapter 2 and verse 10 says that if we have offended in one point, then we are guilty of it all. 
How's that? Well, because God is so holy, God is so pure, He cannot allow one sin into heaven. And if we have sinned just once in our whole life, that's enough sin to keep us out of heaven because God is too pure and holy to look upon sin. Now, how is it that we are sinners? Well, first of all, there's two ways. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. While you're turning there, uh, Brother Lewis, would you knock that temperature down one degree? (laughs) And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. (laughs) A little warm in here, isn't it? Okay. Okay, thank you, brother. We are sinners in two different ways. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. You're a sinner because of the very fact that when Adam sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, He represented you. He represented the whole human race. And when Adam sinned against God as our representative head, he plunged all of humanity into sin. And you say, well, that may not be fair because I wasn't there. But in a sense, you were there. Because the very nature that Adam had has passed down throughout the ages to us. Adam sinned against God. He represented us. And the second way that we are a sinner against God is that we have the same sinful nature that Adam incurred after he sinned against God. So you might, some, someone might say, well, if I would have been there, maybe I would not have sinned. If you would have been there, you would have done the exact same thing that Adam did. You would have sinned against God. That same nature has been passed down. And that's why that we are born with a sinful nature. The Word of God teaches us that we go astray from the womb. We come forth from the wombs speaking lies. David said, In sin did my mother conceive me. Not that there was a sinful act, but that through procreation, the sinful nature of Adam is passed down from one generation to another. So it's just as if we would have been there in the garden in that sense that we were there. It's interesting also, you know, Adam was one individual. But on the other hand, the word Adam means man. So when Adam sinned against God, man sinned against God. He plunged the whole race into sin. So we are a sinner by being represented by the first Adam, and we are a sinner by the fact that we have a sinful nature. Now we see this depicted in that first uh, outline that I gave you, that first section of the book of Romans. But what is the response of God to our sins? Look in Romans chapter 1. This is God's response to our sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God is angry. God is a God of love, but God is also a God of absolute justice. He's angry that we've sinned. He's angry that the truth of God has been, is pushed away in any given generation, any given time, any given era, God is angry that the the truth of God is suppressed. In verses 19 through 21, we read about, we won't look at those verses in depth, but the very natural order, God's, we refer to it as God's general revelation, is suppressed, it's turned away from, it's denied. Even though uh, all things that are through the creation order, we understand that 
this expresses the very eternal power and, and the Godhead to the point that men are without excuse, but yet they turn away from that. And we certainly see that in this day and age. We do not see people looking at nature, appreciating nature, and seeing the hand of God in nature. No, they make that their God. And as, the, as Paul says here, they worship and they serve creation rather than the Creator. Well, not only do they suppress what God has done in His revelation, but they also persist, mankind persists in a life of unrighteousness. Look there, first of all, in verses 23. He replaces God with something and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. They make a God out of nature rather than worshiping nature's God. They worship nature. They become idolaters. And then verses... uh, 24, we read that verse, through verses 27, man is involved in all types of sinful acts of perversion. And he mentions the sin of homosexuality there. That the woman disregards the natural desire for a man and they turn to someone of the same sex. Same thing with men. They disregard the natural desire for a woman and they turn to one another. lust against one another. Uh, And God says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven because of these things. And then look at verse 28. These people... Again, in any given era and time, they did not like to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a debased mind. He let them go. He gave them over to a reprobate mind to do the things which are not fitting. And these are some of the things that mankind chooses to partake in. Beginning with verse 29, they're filled with all kinds of unrighteousness. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Is this not an accurate description of humanity? We've all gone out of the way. And then, in verse 32, even though it says there, who they know the righteous judgment of God, they know that God is angry with the wicked, and yet that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do they do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They know that they're under the judgment of God. They do not repent. They continue in their sins and approve of others who are doing the very same thing. We said that we are under under the judgment of God because without Christ we are dominated completely by our sinful nature. Now why are we sinners? We are not deemed sinners because we sin. Okay? But rather, we sin because we are sinners. That's the nature of man without God. The nature of man without Christ. Now look in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse... 16 talking to the believer knowing this that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin when you come to know Christ when you're born again we're no longer dominated or under control of a sinful nature we're no longer 
Look at the wording there. A slave to sin. A horrible depiction of what it's like to be totally in slavery to sin. But that's that's the nature of the beast that man is without God. Look at verse uh, 19 of the same chapter. Paul said, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Can you remember before you came to Christ how you were a slave to sin? How that was your glory. You gloried in your shame. You you did those things which were ungodly and you saw no reason not to. Especially some of us that were not raised in Christian homes. You know, we see this even more uh, predominant. So, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are unrighteous. We deserve God's condemnation and punishment. And yet, it's so surprising to me that we live in a time where people cannot conceive of this. Because we live in a time where good is called evil and evil is called good. There's little conception of who the true God is, that He's holy, He's just, and He's righteous. And they can conceive, well, I can understand that God is a God of love, but I can't understand why He would be a God of wrath. Because they don't understand the very nature of human beings and what they are and how the, and who they are and how they live according to their sinful nature. And that God is angry with the wicked every day. You know, folks, when we truly have a biblical understanding of the nature of sin and how it is a stench in the nostrils of God and how God is offended and how God hates iniquity, what I cannot understand is how God can love any of us. You see? The world can't understand a God of wrath. I cannot understand a God of love when you understand the true nature of sin. You know, the angels that sinned against God, there was no second chances for them. That's right. There was no redemption for them. God must punish sin. I think it was Billy Graham that he says he said if if God doesn't judge this world he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. How true that is. And as I mentioned earlier, even if we've just sinned once in our life, we deserve the wrath of God because God is so pure, so holy, and so righteous. But let's say, for example, that we are an above average sinner. And we've only sinned three times a day instead of once in our life. I'd say for the average sinner, that's doing pretty good. When you consider that a sin is anything contrary to the will of God in our thoughts, word, and deed, three sins a day, that's over a thousand sins a year. Can you imagine God just saying, well, that's that's not that big of a deal. I'll just let, let them on into heaven. I'll just look the other way. Can God do that? He can't do that and still be God because He's holy, He's righteous. He cannot look upon sin. He is the God who lives in absolute purity, the God who lives in a light that we cannot even comprehend because of who He is. That would be like, can you imagine uh, a bank robber that robs a bank? steals $250,000. He's caught red-handed. The cameras depict him as the criminal. He's found to be guilty. And he goes before the judge, and the judge says, oh, well, he said, you know, it's no, no big deal. This is your first offense. I think I'll just let you go. If that was the case, there wouldn't be a safe bank in all the, all the land. You see, God is a just God. God is a God who must punish sin. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, what is the outcome for our sin? For the wages of sin is death. 
What are you paid with if you sin? The soul that sins shall surely die. Why do we die? Because we're sinners. We all must die because that is our pay. We have earned it. Fair and square. We've sinned and we have earned death. For the wages of sin is death. And because we are sinners, we are born into this world spiritually dead. With, with no heart for God, no desire to please God. We're spiritually dead. And if we die in this state of sin, we're going to be eternally dead. Separated from God throughout all eternity. So we see the horrible plight of sin. The just reason why God is just in pouring out His wrath upon sinful man. So what, is God, what did God do? Did He say, well, I'm, I'm letting God, let, I'm going to let these people go and I'm going to send them all to hell because of their sins? Again, God would be absolutely, totally just in doing that. Romans chapter 3. Verse 21. But now. See that? See that little phrase? But now. The righteousness of God is being revealed. God was angry. We just got through reading in Romans. The first few chapters about God is angry with the unrighteousness of men. But now as we think about this second, second section, this, this glorious salvation, that, that, that now the very righteousness of God is revealed. Something that's contrary to us. The righteousness of God. And God has now revealed that to us. You see, that is our need to become right with God. And now Paul is saying that he's going to explain to us what this righteousness is that has come forth from God. Now, if someone were... Many times we, we, we hear the expression, well, well, how can I go to heaven? Why am I going to go to heaven? And someone might say, well, because Christ died upon the cross for me. Is that a true statement? It is a true statement, but it doesn't tell us the reason for that truth, you see. And that's what Paul is going to do here in these next few verses. Our salvation, the work of Christ upon the cross, is like a glorious diamond. And you know when you hold the diamond up to the light and turn it in various ways, you see different dimensions, different facets of that beautiful gem. Well, that's what Paul's going to do here in relation to what Christ has done for us in the work of a, upon the cross for us. So, folks, this is it. If you've never really understood the full implications of what God was doing in Christ when Christ was upon the cross, let us look at these words. But now, right now, the righteousness of God apart from the law, is being revealed. A righteousness that we could not attain by trying to keep the law, by trying to do good works. And this righteousness that Paul is getting ready to expound upon is not a new thing because it was witnessed by, by the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. Even now in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. When we think about this righteousness that comes from God, we've already said that's what we need because we are not righteous. We've looked at length, at length already the, the fact that we are sinners before God in need of the very righteousness of Christ. Well, when we receive Christ as our Savior, we receive the, the righteousness of God based upon the fact that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son to be a substitute for our sin. That He died in the place of us because He had something that we need. We need something someone to substitute before us. You see, God doesn't grade upon the curve. We either, we, 
No sin, as we've said, can enter the presence of God. And if we're going to enter the presence of God, we must be totally, 100% righteous before we can enter into God's presence. We need someone that can be our substitute, someone that can plead our case for us, someone that can be, be an advocate for us. Long ago, Job said that I, I know that my Redeemer stands and that He will stand upon the earth in the last days. Christ came and offered Himself as the substitute to offer us a righteousness that we could not give to God on our own. He came and offered Himself as that perfect sacrifice. You know, the Old Testament is full of sacrifices that covered sins, that pointed to Christ. And then when Christ came upon the scene, you remember John the Baptist introduced Christ when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That lamb, that sheep, that goat, uh, that sacrifice that was offered in the Old Testament had to be what kind of a sacrifice? It had to be a sacrifice without spot and, and without blemish. A perfect sacrifice as you will. Well, Christ was the only one that fit that bill. He was the only one that could fill the shoes. That's why John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is what God has done in revealing the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says, Behold, now the righteousness of God has been revealed. And what is that righteousness? Verse 22, Even the righteousness of God that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ to all and upon all who believe. We're saved simply by believing and trusting that what Christ did upon the cross is sufficient to atone for our sins. The just for the unjust. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saves us. Isn't that so simple? That is so simple. I look at this chair and I say, well, I wonder if this chair can hold me up. But it takes faith to believe whether or not that chair can hold me up. And I exercise that faith by simply coming over here and resting upon it. See, that, that faith is that simple. Faith in Christ. You understand the Gospel. You've heard the Gospel. Have you believed? Have you trusted? Not just in your head, with a head knowledge. The Bible says the demons believe and they tremble. But have you personally, you, trusted in Christ personally in order that you might be saved from your sins? The way that we receive such a salvation is simply by trusting God. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe the Word of God. You know, when the children of Israel were disobedient and they were murmuring against God, God sent serpents and they bit the people and many of the people died. And the Lord instructed Moses to place a bronze serpent upon the pole. And if the children of Israel in the wilderness would simply look to that serpent, then they would be healed. Even so, the Son of Man was lifted up. If we look upon Him and believe this Gospel through faith, we can be saved. Even, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and upon all who believe, for there is no difference. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace. Grace. We are saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by what? For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is the means. We're not saved by our faith, are we? We're saved by the grace of God through faith and not, not of ourselves. The very faith in which we believe is a gift of God. Not of works, therefore no one can boast. Now what does it mean though? 
What does it mean to be saved by, by the grace of God? That's the only way you're going to be saved. Amen? So what does it mean? Well, someone says the words grace, G-R-A-C-E, is an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. There's a lot of truth to that. But to be saved by grace is to be saved by the very character of God. To be saved by grace is to be saved by the kindness of God. He gives us something. Remember when we read Romans chapter 6? Let's turn back there and look at that again. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. We get that right. But now, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How are we saved? We believe the Gospel. And we receive the gift of God which is eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's the grace of God in giving to us something that we do not deserve. There's the grace of God in allowing us to merit a salvation, to merit a righteousness that is contrary to us. By believing we receive from God a righteousness that is alien to us because we're unrighteous. But when we believe the Gospel, by the grace of God, by the kindness of God, by the mercy of God, by the undeserved grace of God, by the inherent goodness of God, He saves us because He is a God of grace. And all of these dimensions that we're going to look at here, these different dimensions from the cross, extend from the fact that God is a God of grace. Now, folks, you know, I don't understand that completely. You see, how God can love someone who has committed cosmic rebellion against Him and still show love by sending His Son to us. Okay? Then how is it that this grace is partaking of? Partaking of? Look in verse 24. Being justified freely. Freely. doesn't cost us anything to get ourselves right with God. It's free. Some would say that this is in more in relation to God. That God is the only one who is free because we're bound in our sin. But God freely from His sovereignty dispenses that. That's a true fact. Here in this particular text, I think it's speaking more so to the fact that salvation is a free gift of God like we just read in Romans 6.23 uh, rather than the, the former interpretation. But we are, that word justified, you know what that word justified? How, how can we be justified before God? Someone says if we believe the gospel and we are saved, then it's just as if we've never sinned. And that's true. But there's a whole lot more to this doctrine of justification than that. By the way, this glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, it was the heralding cry of the Reformation. And that, what, that is what the true Word of God teaches here. That we are justified totally by what? By the grace of God through faith. But what does it mean then to be justified before God? Well, when we believe the Gospel, when we trust Christ, it means that God, it's a legal term, that God pronounces us righteous. Is that not grace? Not based on anything that we do or we don't do, but when we simply believe, God declares us righteous. A legal term that God uses here. It's a judicial statement that God says, this one has trusted in the substitute, the perfect sacrifice, the righteous, the righteousness of God which is only portrayed in Christ. Do you believe that? Have you believed that? 
I'm not trusting in anything that I've done. I don't trust my very best day on this earth to merit my salvation before God. I am saved wholly because of the righteousness of God that's been applied to me. And God, when we do that, when we believe, we are justified freely by the grace of God. Look at, chat, uh, look at verses uh, 27 and 28. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what? Of works? <laughs> no, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified, declared righteous by faith apart from the deeds of the law. You see, this is the grace of God. We keep reading there. Uh, whom God has set forth as a propitiation. Let's go back to verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the what? We're declared righteous through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now the word redemption comes, it's a slavery term. When someone was a slave and they needed to be Delivered from the slave market, someone would have to go in and purchase them to pay a price in order that that person could be freed from slavery. Well, when Christ came, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what God has done. He's come to save us, to seek us, to redeem us, to purchase us out of the slave market of sin. And a ransom had to be paid. A price had to be paid in order for us to be saved. And the Scripture says here gloriously that we have been justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Through His blood. The word blood there, we know that Christ spilled His blood when He died upon the cross. That's significant of the fact that Christ gave His very life for us. Again, thinking back upon the, uh, the Old Testament system of sacrifice where the lamb had to be offered, that perfect lamb, a life had to be given in order that a life could be saved. You see, this, this word propitiation speaks to the fact that God is a holy, righteous God who cannot casually look away from sin. But because God is holy, because He is just and righteous, there had to be an appeasement. God had to be satisfied. The perfect substitute had to be offered. And only Christ fills that criteria. That He came willingly. He did not come coerced. The second person of the Trinity was in full agreement, in full continuity with the Father that He would come, just as Isaac submitted to Abraham when he thought that Abraham was going to offer him up as a sacrifice. Christ came willingly. And He was the only one that satisfied the perfect justice of God because He did not sin in thought, word, or deed. He fully and completely kept the law of God. That's why Paul cries out here, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Christ is the propitiation, the only one that satisfies the just demands of a holy God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us in the order that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. Glorious thing happens, folks, when we, when we believe the Gospel. We receive 
a righteousness that is alien to us. The very righteousness of God is imputed to us when we believe. And our very sins is imputed to Christ who died for us upon the cross in order that we might be saved. We are saved through this glorious work of God upon the cross. That's why Paul begins... This treatise in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. This is, the, this is God's only play. There's no other name given under heaven through which we can be saved. He, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who who believes, who turns from their sin, who realizes that they have a need of the Savior, and they despise their sin so much, they're willing to turn from it and admit that God is totally right and I'm wrong. I'm going in one direction, but I turn 180 degrees, I go to Christ, believe the Gospel, and I'm saved. When that happens, there's a glorious result. Look at, look at Romans chapter 5. Considering everything that Paul has said thus far, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we've been talking about that, We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's not some type of ethereal, interpersonal serenity, although we do have that when we are Christians. But this is talking about a peace with God due to the fact that now we've been reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That God is no longer angry with us. We are no longer now alienated from God because we are recipients of the grace of God. Therefore, having been justified, made righteous by our faith, we now have this peace, this acceptance with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Isn't that great? Now we have access because we are in Christ. We have access to God and His grace in which we, we stand and now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We glory in the Gospel. Paul said, I glory in nothing else except the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, we've looked at the horrible nature of sin, the glorious nature of the Gospel displayed in the righteousness of Christ. And if we as God's children have been a recipient of this grace, what should our response be? What is our response? What's your response going to be tomorrow when you raise your head up off the pillow? Well, glad I'm saved. No big deal. Just going to go on with life as usual. Romans chapter 6 and verse 15, Paul answers that question. What then? Shall we sin? In other words, shall we continue in sin? Because we are not under the law, but under the grace of Christ? Certainly not. God forbid. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves to whom you obey? We talked about that, right? The sinner without God is a slave to sin, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. You see, when we are in Christ, we're still a slave. We're no longer a slave to sin. Now we are willing slaves to Christ. Last Sunday we studied David's psalm, didn't we? 
when he cried out to God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there's any wicked way. And lead me in the way everlasting. I want to be your slave. I want to be obedient to you. I want to follow you. Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. How, how can we who are now dead to sin live any longer in it? You see. So then we move to this next section in Romans. We've studied sin. We've studied salvation. And now the next process is sanctification. If we've truly been saved, then the next step is that we are going to be sanctified. If, if you have no sanctification, then you have no salvation. Because it's a package deal, folks. This is where... Because Christ that has come to live in, in us, He is living His life through us, and now we begin to reflect that very nature of God that was lost in the first Adam. Because we are now in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 6. Begin with verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, even so we also should walk in newness of Christ. Because we are in Christ, because we are in union with Christ, we are partakers of His death and resurrection. Christ died for us. We died to our sin. Christ died for our sins. We died to our sins. Christ rose again from the dead. Even so that we are in Christ, we've been raised to a newness of life. 4 verse 5, If we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slain slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. So you see now, folks, we serve a new master. A gracious, loving master. And his yoke is easy. His burden is light. And because of our love for him, because of our love uh, to obey him, our desire to walk with him, we fulfill the law of God through faith, by the grace of God. And this is the victory that we have. The victory that we have in Christ. Now Paul goes on to say, we won't take the time to turn there, that even though we're made right with Christ, it doesn't mean that we enter a state of sinless perfection, does it? No. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the things that I want to do, I do not. And the things that I desire not to do, I do, you see. There is a time where we may take three steps forward and we fall back two two steps backwards. We're going to lose some battles in our desire to follow Christ. But yet there is a constant and continual progression unto holiness if you're a child of God. As I said... No sanctification, no salvation. And although we're going to lose some some battles along the way, we are engaged in a winning war. The Apostle John wrote to his hearers in 1 John chapter 2, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's God desires that we for us that we may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. A helper. One who stands beside us. One who will defend our case. Not before the Father, but with the Father. And who is that? That is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The one who is righteous. 
You see, we just got through studying about the fact that He is the propitiation for our sins. And that's what John says here. That He is, in fact, the propitiation of our sins. If we sin against God, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we look to our Advocate, the One who is the only mediator between God and man, the One who stands with the Father, Jesus Christ, our righteousness. One whose blood continues to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the glory of what we have in Jesus Christ. In closing, let's look at a few more verses. In Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on our account of sin." He condemned sin in the flesh that, here it is, here it is, this is what we've been talking about all along. The wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. Christ came as the perfect substitute, the perfect righteous one to intercede for us, to be our advocate. We believe, we receive that righteousness. If indeed we are in Christ, because He's in us, He transforms us in order that we, as willing servants of Him, might go on to produce true righteousness. Here's the glory of the gospel worked out. In order that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, that's the glorious gospel. Even though we've sinned and fallen short of the gospel, we're rebels without a cause. We've sinned against God with a high hand. Uh, Romans chapter 3 talks about there are none righteous. There are no, not one. We've all gone to our own way. We're each doing our own thing. We deserve the wrath of God. But God, despite that, has sent His Son. A righteousness of God has been revealed. He gives us His Son in the aspect of absolute free grace. And when we believe that, we're gloriously saved. And we go on to reflect the nature of that grace by producing a life of righteousness that's pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. No human imagination could even begin to dream up such glorious truths. Father, we thank You that You do not leave us in our sin as we deserve, but has provided for us a great and glorious Savior. And we praise You because of this work of grace that You've done for us. In Christ's holy name, Amen.